Hello and welcome to the podcast, Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. Society tries to put us into boxes, doesn't it? And I understand why, because it's easy to manage people through to wherever we feel we need to be. I never thought I'd say this to my younger self, but in actual fact, some of the stuff that I've been through, although it's been quite painful and I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, it's actually made me the person I am now. Today, I'm talking to Christy Sperling, who is the founder and CEO of Engage, a youth charity that aims to support and engage young people in positive activities. Christy is married to Joe and they have two children. He's an avid drummer and when he isn't busy as CEO or playing at events, he likes to play golf. Welcome, Christy, and thank you for joining us. Hi, Andy. Thanks for having me. It's lovely to see you and um, to talk about your story. So you grew up in Lim and in Manchester. Um, tell us a little bit about what you were like uh, at school. I really didn't get on very well at school. I didn't fit into the school-shaped box at all, really. From a, even from primary school, I, I was kind of causing issues. I, went, I grew up in a very quite a small village, Lim in Cheshire, um, and I was one of only three black people in the village. So kind of just always felt like I stuck out like a sore thumb anyway. And then obviously back in the early 80s, issues with kind of racism and that kind of stuff, being bullied mainly for the colour of my skin really. And then started to cause concerns quite early on in primary school and just gradually found myself becoming more and more isolated from learning. And eventually I just spent most of my time outside the head teacher's office. He used to have a little fold down table behind his door. <laughs> he just used to pull it out from behind his door and it was kind of it came in inevitability that I was going to end up there um, and then I just just used to sit outside his office copying out of books really. Wow gosh so, so what sort of um, um, issues were sort of coming up at the time in school? I, I didn't like being left in school um, so I, I had the sort of attachment issues I think obviously when you're adopted and you're kind of giving up at birth which I was and I think just general issues with my reasons for being adopted sense of identity um, all that kind of plus I've just been a normal young person and growing up has, has, is challenging enough in itself it is isn't it and, and, and you had extra things on your shoulders as, as well so so that was at primary school so so as you grew up you um, went into a secondary school I guess in, in Manchester yeah I went to, I went to Lim High School and I've never really coped very well with change when I started the first year which would have been what we call year seven now. We were in one site with year seven, eights and nines. And then the rest of the school were on a, an upper school further down the road. And I, I got into the year seven, as would have been, and found my way around school and all that kind of stuff. And then they merged both the schools together. So I went from being in a school with probably six or 700 people in it to a school, probably 1,500. And obviously, as I said earlier, I didn't cope in big crowds. I just sussed out being in secondary school and then I had this big upheaval. Wow, wow. So how did you sort of cope and um, survive in that environment? Well, I was, there were things that I was good at, which I was kind of were used as a bit of a carrot to try and entice me to, to, to perform, behave, really. So I was kind of really encouraged in my music, in my, in my drumming, and I was quite sporty as well. Athletics, I used to love short distance, sort of 100 metres hurdles, 
and stuff like that. So I used to do quite a bit of running for the county, Cheshire County Schools, as it was. And then I was also, in, in the academic side of it, I really struggled. So quite often I was just putting, they used to call it an inclusion room. There was just a room where all the disengaged pupils that they didn't know what to do with get, used to get thrown. And I just used to either go to the lessons that I was supposed to go to and then end up getting kicked to sent there or just sit in the lessons and not really understand um, the work. It, it was a really high-performing school with kids who kind of went on to do quite well. And I was disruptive. I wasn't the only disruptive person. And then still kind of struggled with English and maths particularly. Um, but also, I was quite practical, so woodwork and things like that I really enjoyed. But then I, lay, I found out, out towards the sort of the back end of being in high school that I actually had a logic disorder as well. So I had real problems with like patterns. And so if you gave me a mathematical sequence, what would seem like a very, really straightforward thing to, I guess, 95% of the class, no matter how you dressed it up for me, I just couldn't get it. And it used to get really frustrating. And I think what happens, and I see it in my work at the moment, is if you get frustrated, there's two things you can do. You can put your hand up and say, I don't understand that I'm struggling. Or you can find little coping mechanisms to find, try and get yourself out of the situation. Um, and for me, that was just messing around, being disruptive. So I carried on like that for most of first and second year of high school. And then, because it was a good, such a good school, parents were complaining to the staff saying, there's this lad in my son and daughter's lessons and he keeps on disrupting them and he's stopping them from learning. But I wasn't like a really maliciously horrible kid. I was just, just struggled to find my space in school. So I wasn't like going around causing, you know, massive riots and you know, burning down schools and stuff. I was just... I guess misunderstood is probably how I'd describe it. I was just in school one day, just in lessons, and I, my parents had been called in for a meeting and um, got pulled out of lessons. And my parents were in the room, and basically my, the head teacher said, I've had that many complaints about your son's behaviour, that um, this is the end of the road. So I got asked to leave, um, and my parents were kind of told, um, because there's nowhere else for us to send him in the, in the borough, in the, in, the, in the authority. We found a place for him at a, a residential unit in Shropshire. And the only other alternative would have been for my mum to homeschool. My mum and dad um, reluctantly agreed that it probably would be best for me to go to this residential unit. And my behaviour at home had just deteriorated. I was really um, quite aggressive towards my, my adopted mum because I had issues with the mother part of the relationship because of being adopted and my real mum giving me up. My dad, to be fair to him, he tried really hard with me. Um, I think, looking back, it was probably, I understand now as a parent that sometimes you have to make, you have to, things have to go as far as they can you know, in, to the worst end of the um, extreme for you to realise how lucky you are. And so how were you sort of making sense of who you were as a person at that time? Was it sort of all wrapped up in... in these issues that, that you've highlighted or did you start to have a sense of areas that you enjoyed and areas that you didn't enjoy? I always kept my music going so even even when I got put into the unit the residential place I had a drum kit there there's a, a storeroom at the back of the gym and I just used to let me put the kit in there and go and play it and it, then it moved into my bedroom so I knew I was good at stuff music quite practical and liked kind of making stuff woodwork that kind of stuff but I just didn't get textbooks at all. So you were then at the residential unit how, how long were you there and what so what happened after that? I was there for the best part of three years so and it was it was just just typical residential unit different people coming and caring for you people on shift some staff you got on with some you didn't it's like the 
the meeting point of all the most messed up children that you could ever find. And we just had to try and find a way of doing life together. And did you find you, you connected with any people during that time? There was, um, there was a guy called Aaron. Interestingly, Aaron was the first black male role model I'd ever had in my life at the age of 14. So what, so tell us what, what happened next then. So you, you were there three years and... By now, my mum and dad had moved from Lim in Cheshire to Rusholm. And they moved to Rusholm to give me and my brother a bit of culture. And I just loved the fact that I could walk down that street and nobody would, nobody would bat an eyelid. So going and living in Rusholm was just... It was, yeah, it's very, it's very, very strange, but um, enjoyable as well. Oh, that's good. You maybe started to feel a bit more normal, you know, you know, compared with other people around you. So, so then you, you, you need obviously needed to do some, some work. I trained to be a chef actually. Um, did a, a youth training scheme, YTS. So I went to a college in Openshaw for part of the week, and then we did placements in various kitchens. So I had a placement in Manchester Business School in the kitchens there. And I also worked at a steak restaurant in Salford Keys that was, at the time was quite a high-end place. So you were there for a time, and, and so what did you, you, you do after that? Because at some point you were doing some administration. and, and... I got into sort of office jobs, office junior type roles. I got a job working in solicitor's office where it was right near Manchester, one of the courts in Manchester. <laughs> and then <laughs> my job was a filing clerk. And I said earlier on that I had a, a logic disorder and I had problems with putting stuff into patterns. And one of, one of the ways that that really manifested itself was when the little codes on all the files, and there's about 10,000 files in this room that I used to have to look after. And I used to have to try and get the files out so that solicitors and judge, uh, lawyers could take them to court. And sometimes I just put stuff back and I had no idea, <laughs> no idea where I put it. So I found myself getting into, into trouble with people constantly. Um, to the point where in the end they said, I think you probably need to go and find something else. This isn't your calling, lad. Well, at least you, at least you learned something from that. So, so tell us, you, you then you, you went to the Nazarene Theological College to do a diploma in youth work and theology. So, so tell us a little bit about what, what motivated you to do that. I started doing youth work at church whilst I was kind of working and just building my confidence, making friends. So I got involved in doing youth work at Ivy. Ivy Cottage or Ivy Manchester as it is now because people to be honest personally partly because people used to grab me to play with drums at various sort of youth, um, youth events and stuff and partly because I, um, I think I had a bit of an understanding of some of the kids who were perhaps on the edges of the groups a little bit so I got involved in doing that and then did something called a new life team which was like a year out sort of a gap year and um, where I kind of learned communication skills learned loads about the bible about how to communicate how to tell stories how to stand in front of people and share stuff and then from there I decided I'd, I'd go to college and I applied to Nazarene they just used to take people on who, who weren't academic but who they, they saw some potential in and they, they'd give you a chance and so I, I, did, I did a diploma in youth work and theology just just before that all happened I got married to Joe and we went and did a placement so half my time was at Nazarene and the rest of the time I was at a, I got placed at a Methodist church in Altrincham and work there. I say work. At times, it felt like it's a full-time job, on top of studying, doing a placement there, trying to develop their youth work. Yeah. So, how did you cope with that? Because you know, you were on the one hand, you were studying. On the other hand, I guess you're sort of putting things into practice. So, we did you find you could sort of put into practice what you were learning at the college, and how did, did that dynamic work for you? 
to be honest, I found college really challenging in a good in a good way and in, in a challenging way. But I found the academic side of it really difficult. I'd never written an essay. I hadn't done GCSEs. I'd never done exams. I hadn't been trained in how to revise or how to retain information so that you could articulate it onto a piece of paper. Although I was sort of in my early 20s, it was a massive, I think my whole experience of education had been negative. So even though I was in this amazing environment with these amazing teachers and stuff, it was still quite a challenge to to get my head into where it needed to be. And I was I was studying with people who were doing doctorate, doctorates and masters and you know all sorts of stuff. So it was quite challenging. But I really, really love the youth work bit of it. I found the theology bit was challenging and the, the youth work was what I really kind of, I won't say I excelled in it, but I think I probably did, I felt more in line with what with that side of the course. Yeah, so so you, you persevered through all of those difficulties, the highs and lows, I suppose you could say, to, to actually gain that diploma, which I think says a lot about you as a person, not wanting to let go. Perhaps you'd found something that, you know, was shaped a bit like you in in the youth work side of things. So then you you went um, and became a senior residential social worker in a place that was similar to the place you'd been in Shropshire. Yeah, I left Nazarene, and I'm quite open about this. I I, I really struggled. I had a bit of a bout. Of, I've struggled with depression over the years, various times of in my life. So I had a, a quite it hit me like a brick when I left college. My intention was to go and get a job in a church and just do church-based youth work. And I applied for quite a few jobs and for various reasons, I didn't get anything. Um, I ended up going and working in a factory. And my wife worked, at a, um, it was like a bedding factory. And my wife worked in the offices and they had some jobs for people to work in a warehouse. So I went and did that for a few months. But I was on a real downer because I was like, oh, I've put all this effort into getting a qualification. I used some inheritance money to pay for my degree and my, my diploma. And I kind of was very angry that I couldn't get a job. And for various reasons, it just been, things were quite tough. But while I was in the factory, a mate who was working in a school said, oh, I found out about this job that someone was telling me about, but I can't do it because of a shift and family life and stuff. What, what do you think about it? So I applied. It was basically, it was, it was exactly the same school as where I'd been when I was in the residential unit. So same sorts of kids, very broken, very damaged, quite a lot of violence, quite a lot of take him to court all, all the same stuff happened with us lots of crime drugs everything so I went and worked there for two two and a half years so I want to take you forward a little bit to when you actually founded Engage which is the charity you're you're now the CEO of tell us about the journey you went through from the sort of initial thought into actually establishing Engage initially I just went out um, into a couple of areas of Manchester where I knew those problems with young people hanging around and causing antisocial behaviour. Just looked from a safe distance at what was happening, worked out where they were. And then I'd, um, over about five or six weeks, I worked out those two areas. One was Didsbury and one was Northendon, um, where there was groups of young people congregating. In Didsbury, it was up to 100 people in Didsbury Park on Friday nights, to be honest with you, sometimes... Um, spread out over the different areas so I got a team of people from our church and we just voluntarily went out and started talking to these young people and we just basically said we're from a local church we didn't have a name at that time it was just a, a kind of a, an idea we'd had we just um, we just used to go out and just talk to these young people just say um, at, the, <clears throat> at the time you know we're from a local church just here to chat to you see if we can help you 
And when we started taking sports equipment like footballs and you know, rounders bats and stuff, and over a period of weeks, we, we started getting this regular group of young people turning up each week. And they were kind of waiting for us when we got into the park. And we just used to sit and chat to them, just sit on the grass and talk to them in the summer and play football with them. And over a period of weeks, they, they just started to really get to, to know us, to respect us. And they always used to say, why are you here? And we used to say, we're just from, at the time, we're from a local church, we just want to do something. And they'd say, are you getting paid? And we used to say, no, we just want to, we just feel like we want to help people. And it, that used to blow people's minds. And that became the model of, of how we developed the work. Everything we did started off as a free offer. So we'd go into schools and we'd work with pupils and say, right, we'll come in for 10 weeks and we'll, we won't charge you. And it just snowballed from there, really. I, I, before I started all of this, actually, I, I went to Didsbury Police Station and I knocked on the door and I said, can I speak to someone um, senior? And they said, yeah, so this sergeant opened the door. And he, I said, um, I'm looking to do some detached work in the area. We just some local youth workers will come out and we'll, we'll be out and about on Friday nights when, you're, when, when we know there's lots of young people out. And he sat me down and he said, you know what, I've just got off a call from someone at further up the food chain about this issue that we've got with young people in Didsbury and what we're going to do about it and we're struggling to find resources and that kind of stuff um, and I just said right well, we'll we'll come out and work with you guys and he said oh at the time I have no budget so I said it's all right we'll, we'll just do it voluntarily and obviously if, if it if we can prove it works and it's something that helps you we can perhaps have another conversation so we piloted it for six weeks and prior to the six weeks every every night gmp in didsbury were getting phone calls from local residents around the back of didsbury park saying there's hundreds of kids out causing problems and drinking and doing all sorts and for the six weeks that we went out there was no reports of any no no reports from any residents about any kind of youth crime and we know that what was actually happening was that they were all kind of congregating in the park being engaged in positive activities so I went back to GMP after six weeks and they said, right, look, then we really want you to carry on with this. And I think it took a little bit of time, but eventually they said, right, we found a little bit of money. We can pay you um, a little bit of budget to, to, keep, to keep it going. And we actually started doing that just as all a, a lot of the local authority youth provision ended. And there was a real gap I and mean, kind of a bit of a, a challenge for local authorities about how they're going to manage stuff and that, so we just launched at just the right time and then we just started expanding it into different areas doing it in, in more places police bought a little police bus a little mobile youth bus and what we did was we used to provide volunteers and they'd drive it to where they where, where we wanted it where we knew there were going to be young people and then the police the pcso's would come and kind of play football with the young people and engage with them and we'd kind of just be voluntary and it it just it just grew from there right right that's amazing isn't it and so then you, you, you established the charity, Engage, and um, I can see why you called it Engage now, because you were telling us about engaging the young people in, in positive activities and so on. So tell us what it's like now. Well, it's grown and grown and grown. We've got a bus, a mo a mo our own youth bus, which is a single-decker, the smallest bus that you can get. It's got Xboxes, Playstations, somewhere for young people to sit. So that goes out all over different communities. Um, young people come on just engage sit with the staff chat to us part of our model is we won't just go to random areas so some of the areas that we're working in now we've been working there for like five or six years so there's, there's parts of Withenshaw where we've been on certain estates certain streets six or seven years same night every night it's generally the same staff building relationships and then you get known by the police you get known by all the families and then you can take them off and do sort of residentials and different activities we've got a youth center which closed under a bit of a cloud about five years ago so we took it off the council 
raised I think it's about fifty, sixty thousand pounds, renovated it and got it reopened against a backdrop of it being a failing centre that nobody else had managed to to make work really. And then we also go into schools because my, my background obviously would be being excluded and then going into schools with, for local authority. And we piloted lots of programmes where we'd get alongside difficult to engage young people and we'd run 10-week programmes where like looking at prison, drugs, crime, citizenship, getting a job, you name it, all sorts of issues. And it was all small group work. And then we'd, we did, we'd, we'd developed that and that just really grew and grew and grew to a point where at one point, I say this to give you an idea of scale rather than as a boastful thing, but if you think that in the early days of a charity, people say, right, here's 500 pounds to go and do like 10 weeks detached work in an area, which at the time was a lot of money, but it, it, you know, it didn't go very far. And I found myself selling these programs to schools and bringing in about 50 to 60,000 pounds a year, um, which was then put into the charity and enabled us to take staff on and develop our ideas and stuff. Um, and that was at a time when schools were going through massive cuts but they needed to find ways to try and engage people and what we did was we used to say we always just tried to market stuff so that it was attractive to teachers or local authorities or you know any anyone in authority but it, it used to cost a school let's say five or six thousand pounds to exclude a pupil because the money used to follow the pupil so if a head teacher at the start of the year in september got six thousand pounds for a pupil if that pupil got excluded in November, that money went, whatever was left of that money went to where, that's, where that pupil went. So we, we, I used to, and that obviously had a massive implication because if you get rid of six or seven pupils, you, suddenly the mass starts to become quite big, doesn't it? You're talking potentially a, a member of staff's salary for, for a year or whatever. And so we used to say for the price of one exclusion, we'll come in and work in your school for a whole year. You can use us for one-to-ones, small group work, assemblies, whatever you want, and we will we'll be on kind of on site which either a day, a week or half a day, would depend on how the pricing worked out. And because we, we, we struck that balance of actually, it, it, for the price of one person going, you're getting all of this stuff and we can work in across a whole school. Um, you can stand up and do an assembly in front of a whole year group about achievement or, you know, I used to stand up and talk about my background in school and getting kicked out and stuff and aspirations and all sorts. And so quite quickly, head teachers got, got, got hold of it and went, this is... Cause of, Ultimate schools kind of run like businesses, aren't they? I know they don't. And people just used to look at it and go, actually, I can see the value of that. And it's not just a financial value, it's a real social value as well. And then um, just a few years ago, you were awarded an MBE for your, your work. Um, tell us a little bit about how that felt. <laughs> so that was um, last November and it was amazing. I had an inkling it was happening because I think my wife, it was my wife that did the application, Joe, but she had to get letters from the mayor and various people to, to back up your, your, your application. So I had an inkling it was happening. It's one of those weird things where <laughs> trying to be a bit humble, but I'd, I'd, be, I'd be watching the postman thinking, is it going to be today? Is it going to be today? And then after a certain point, I thought, oh, it's not going to happen. And I've never really, I won't say I work to get awards, but obviously something like that is it's an amazing accolade. I mean, if you, if you can get it, then I think you'd be mad to say no to it. So we'd kind of just given up it would have been around about last April I think and I think we just thought oh that's it and then a letter appeared and um, this is basically a letter from the cabinet office telling me I've been awarded an MBA and it's just quite a, yeah and then we went down last November me took the girls out of school made a bit of a fuss about it got first class trains and stuff and um, you, know, you don't know who you're going to get until you arrive at the palace 
And as we were arriving, one of the one of the courtier guys whispered to the girls and said, "Oh, you're in luck today. It's the Queen. She only does three of them a year." So yeah, that was just unbelievable experience. Oh, it's wonderful. It's wonderful, and it's so encouraging that the work that you you're doing that in a way you're, you're all the difficulties in your early life have set you up to be you know one of the best people doing this now because you understand where the where the, the kids are at to get that recognized i think it's absolutely fantastic and and, and well deserved but I've, I've just got one last question I'm, and i'm just thinking of you and that if it if it was the young christy sat at sat at the table with with you now what would be your advice to him i said this at the start society tries to put us into boxes doesn't it and i understand why because it's easy to manage people through to wherever we, we feel we need to be but i think i've tried to just use what i've got my experiences and my skills to make myself kind of indispensable make myself unique in my in my field where where i where i operate and i think what i never thought i'd say this to my younger self but in actual fact some of the stuff that i've been through although it's been quite painful and i wouldn't necessarily recommend it it's actually made me the person i am now and i can look at i can look back and reflect on where i've been and know that some of that stuff has been not in vain there's people who are very proud of me who probably at times thought that they'd be visiting me in prisons and places you know various other places and there's there's people who to be honest with you didn't think i'd probably have made it to 45 years old to be honest with you and that it sounds quite dramatic but there's believe me there's been times in real low times when i've kind of thought what's this all about and so I, I guess to answer your question i would just say that you should never give up on your dreams you should find what you're good at and find your niche and then just stick to it there's people who said to me when i set this up you're not quite you're not the right character you're not got the right personality you're too quiet you're too this you're too that and i've just gone yeah okay i'll take that on board but i'm still going to do it but just be yourself don't let people put you off and everybody's got some potential everybody's got something they're good at everybody's got something that they can offer society and you just have to work around the problems to find what that is that's right and that's what this is all about it's it's that journey of discovery because as you say everyone's got something and it's partly what they they're given when they start off you know in terms of talents and that and it's partly the experience that they have on the journey as well that shapes you but actually you're the right shape for what you're doing now and the impact you have on people's lives you know that that such a critical time in in your life you know those teenage years is is amazing so we're very grateful for what you're doing thank you very much thank you <laughs> uh, it's been great to chat to you christy yeah. thanks okay thanks for your time as well If you've enjoyed this podcast, to help others enjoy it too, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and don't forget to rate and review. Thank you.